Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Here's the way the game is played. We've it for a long time. And the great Martin Feldstein told me this once. You try to write op-eds, and they're really hard to write. They're much harder to pull off than any of us think. And if you're lucky, one out of five, one out of seven has resonance. William Dudley of the New York Fed and, of course, all his work at Goldman Sachs over the years. Full disclosure, he was on my book of ancient time ago. Bill Dudley has done that. The essay this morning from Dudley is a required read because he lectures us on the dynamics of inflation and how it links to the real economy. I'll get that out on Twitter. It's the essay to throw at somebody mouthing off with certitude about inflation. Bill Dudley, congratulations on clearing the air. I want to go back to Heller in the 60s, and it's real simple, Bill Dudley. You emphasize demand pull inflation over cost. Cost push inflation. Why is demand of labor so important to jumpstart our fear of inflation? Well, to get an ongoing inflation problem, not just the little bubble that we're experiencing right now from uh, reopening and supply disruptions, uh, you really need to have pressure on resources, and pressure on resources starts with labor. It's probably premature to expect a real inflation problem right now because we still have a lot of people out of work because of the pandemic. If you look at the level of payroll employment to right now compared to where we were in February 2020 before the pandemic started, we're still 8 million jobs short. And we're also not seeing much in the way of wage pressure. While wage pressure in the first quarter was a little bit firmer, on a year-over-year basis, so wages for private sector workers are only up 2.8%. It's hard to have much of a wage inflation problem if wages are still quite quiescent. Uh, Dr. Dudley, how do you overlay this different American economy? Lisa alluded to this earlier, but to me, it's simply an exercise in technology and an exercise in concentration of jobs growth, almost monopsonistic. How do you overlay technology onto the American fears of inflation in 2021? Well, technology is obviously changing uh, work habits in quite a way. It allows people to work remotely. Uh, and so we're going to see a wholesale change in how people work, I think, over the next uh, few years. I, you know, whether, whether we, how much we go back to the pre-pandemic mode of working, I think remains to be seen. I think the problem right now is that you have a lot of people who are not actively seeking work because, uh, you, you know, they have child care problems. Uh, they're worried about getting sick uh, or uh, they, they just may, you know, their, their businesses may not have been reopened yet. Uh, but I think as the economy uh, you know, reopens, a lot of these 8 million workers that are still out of work will, will, will become available again. Bill, how much control does the Fed still have over inflation? I, th- I think they still have control in the large, in the sense that they can control how fast the economy grows, how tight the labor market becomes, and that ultimately drives inflation. They can't on, uh, over the, in the small. I mean, obviously, the supply disruptions that we're seeing right now, they can't do very much about that. The big spike you saw, for example, in used car prices, you know, that's a confluence of uh, two things. One, uh, chip disruptions that are limiting new uh, car production. And two, uh, demand for cars by rental companies who are starting to get back in business again. 
But it raises a question for the reaction function of the Federal Reserve. In other words, how much they can actually effectuate change or some sort of decline in these prices should it start to tighten policy. It perhaps isn't a first step toward tightening policy, but the Fed is going to unwind its nearly $14 billion uh, portfolio of corporate debt and corporate debt ETFs. Was this policy a template for how the Fed will handle other additional market situations going forward? I think what they're doing with the corporate bond portfolio is pretty unrelated to the whole notion of monetary policy tightening because it's actually a very small uh, portfolio in terms of size, and it's not something that they typically own as part of their uh, portfolio mix. So I think I would not take that decision as implying anything about the timing of taper and the timing of actually lifting off and raising short-term interest. Bill, does uh, does the Fed, though, actually really want to see that target hit? Because we get a lot of talk out of the Fed about how this is transitory. There seems to be this general sense here right now that if expectations themselves don't rise, you basically don't get there. You look at market pricing right now, we're somewhere around about 2.3% or so on five-year, five-year forwards right now with regards to inflation expectations. That's pretty much in line with what we've seen over the last 10, 20 30 years as far as averages go here. Expectations, at least among the market, really hasn't risen despite all of the anecdotal evidence we have on the ground that inflation is here and it is real. Uh, the Fed is actually happy that inflation expectations have risen a bit because they were actually pr pretty low going into the uh, pandemic. And this is one reason why the Fed has changed their long-term monetary policy framework to target to 2% inflation on average rather than 2% inflation at any point in time. They want to keep inflation expectations better anchor, anchored. And this increase that we've seen in inflation expectations, which is pretty modest, has better anchored inflation expectations around 2%. They're, so they're pretty comfortable with what's happening in that respect. They're probably happy about that as opposed to unhappy about that. You're absolutely right, though. If inflation expectations are well-behaved, it's really hard to get an ongoing inflation problem. So my view of it is it's really about the labor market, tightness in the labor market, that driving up wages, wages getting into prices. And then do the, does the increase in prices yeah. start to affect inflation expectations? I think that the, what we're seeing now in inflation is going to turn out to be transitory. But I think there could be a longer term inflation problem just because the Fed's monetary policy regime is a different one now where they said that it could be very, very slow uh, to lift off from zero in terms of short term interest rates. I'm curious as your thoughts on the wage situation, the wage inflation situation, particularly because we actually saw wages, at least as far as their historical averages, hold up pretty well uh, during the uh, COVID-induced recession here. The idea here that we would see some sort of meaningful appreciation above the whatever it is, 3% uh, uh, plus uh, rate that we've been at here, is it even possible, given that we're coming off such of a, a relatively high floor, uh, that we would see a meaningful bump up in wage inflation? I mean, it's possible, but it's hard to imagine a big wage inflation spiral at this point in time, given that you still have 8 million, or 8 million jobs short of where you were going into the pandemic. And the unemployment rate itself, even though that doesn't suggest the labor market that's that tight, 6.1% unemployment rate is still well above the 3.5% rate that we reached in February of 2020. Bill, before so it seems we like there's still a lot of labor market slack. Before we let you go, Bill, we're talking about AMC today. Is the Fed responsible for frothy markets? I think the Fed is responsible for creating a monetary policy that's very uh, conducive to lifting financial asset prices. But, you know, the AMC phenomenon, I think, is something that I would not lay at the feet of the Fed. Uh, Bill, we'd like to get more of a quote from you than that on AMC. <laughs> I mean, Bill, do you think regulation's got to step in here? I mean, this is unusual, to say the least. 
Well, I think, you know, this is a question where, you know, I think people need to think about what's fundamental value and what's the stock price relative there to the fundamental go. value. Uh, if you, you know, so, so buyer beware, I guess that's the way I, way I would put it. Bill Dudley with advice for Romain Bostic. We'll run that tape this <laughs> afternoon. Bill Dudley, Bloomberg Opinion Commons. I can't say enough about his essay uh, today. I'll put it out on Twitter here uh, in a bit. Right now, Glenn Hubbard joins us. He is, of course, the former dean of Columbia Business School, of which many of our employees have attended. And I, I must say, with his esteemed public service to America, Glenn, we're so happy to have you with your bachelor's degree of Florida, knowing that Bill Dudley will come along with his bachelor's degree of Florida. What's in Florida economics? I think it's hugely misunderstood in the Northeast of the esteemed history of Florida economics. Talk to us about Central Florida as Bill Dudley would talk about the new college. Well, I had a great experience. I was uh, an engineering student uh, and then an econ student, but I had nothing but great teachers and great experiences in a wonderful part of the country. I could really say, folks, you know, in all my experience here, Florida economics is a general statement is way, way underrated. Glenn Hubbard, you are not an inflationista. I want you to describe for our audience this fear of inflation and what the true inflationistas have wrong. Well, I... It really gets back to supply and demand, Tom, and it's a race between the two. We know the economy is reopening, and demand is certainly there from very accommodative fiscal and monetary policy. Supply has been slower with bottlenecks and some issues in the labor market, like uh, unemployment insurance benefits perhaps being too generous. I think on balance, it's not that I think the Fed is necessarily wrong, but they're not managing risks well. I, I do think there's more of a risk of an upside to inflation, and I think the Fed would be wise to at least acknowledge that risk more and begin its tapering and discussions of tapering. You mentioned Florida. I'm from the South. There's an expression, fixing to do something. Well, the Fed needs to stop fixing to do something and actually uh, do something. So can you draw the distinction between good inflation and bad inflation at a time when food prices are surging the most in more than a decade? Well, I don't know that anything is really good, but it, the transitory inflation would be simply the bottlenecks occur and we have supply chain disruptions related to the pandemic. It takes a little while for that to work through. Relative prices can change as people's preferences change across goods. The real concern is longer term persistent inflation. And I do get a little weary of hearing the Fed say, well, we have all the tools. Of course they have all the tools, but they had all the tools in the 1960s, too. And and it got out of hand. So I think you, you really need to watch those pressures a little bit more carefully than are being watched right now. Professor Hubbard, uh, we're just getting a word from political reporting that Biden wants $1 trillion in new spending in the infrastructure bill, countering some of the Republican offers that include less than $300 billion in new spending. Why do you think that this is excessive, given the fact that we still have a lot of people unemployed and wages are still a key concern, particularly on the lower wage spectrum? Well, I do think it's excessive. We don't have output gaps, if I can use econ speak for a minute, of the size the Biden plans uh, identify. I do think we need a real infrastructure package, but a lot of what President Biden has proposed is really more social spending than infrastructure. And I think the economy does need infrastructure, and even the size of that could be open to debate. 
What worries me about his fiscal plans is that if you add them all up from the rescue plan, the jobs plan, the families plan, they're very, very large and largely unpaid for despite, uh, despite the rhetoric. And they are indeed a transformation away from work and dynamism towards social spending. And both of those things worry me and I think worry many in the public. You know, there was a great rap video about 10 years ago um, that showed Keynes versus Hayek in a boxing match. But a decade on, it seems like um, Keynes won uh, in a knockout. Hayek, I mean, there aren't any Austrian economists left, it seems. And even the Keynesians are have become conservative and traditional. MMT is the new way to think. Is there is there really been a sea change here? Well, I'm not so sure. I actually use that video in my political economy class to talk about the pandemic. So basically, the Keynesian response was the big aggregate demand stimulus. But a lot of what is going to happen in the economy and is interesting in the economy is how we're going to adapt uh, as we recede from COVID. That's a Hayekian story. The way to do that is on the ground. Hayek's, quote, man on the spot, person on the spot. Uh, of really figuring that out. So I think we're going to need a mixture of the Keynesian response and the Hayekian response, and I don't think we want one without the other. We, uh, we all love the economics lesson we saw in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, where he talks about voodoo economics, <laughs> um, top-down stimulus. What we're looking at right now in Matthew Bosler's great big take um, from last week, you're quoted in that uh, story, is an attempt to stimulate the economy from the bottom up. Is that um, a smart way to do it? Well, I think we do need measures that maintain incomes. I do think we're calling too much stimulus. What the economy really needs right now is a way to help people adapt. And that's support for the jobs of the future, for the businesses of the future. And it's very different than the kinds of plans that President Biden is proposing. Uh, unfortunately, the opposition's not proposing mm -hmm. much either, but it'd really be about jobs and the future. Greg, uh, Glenn, rather, we're short on time. I want to be direct as I can. We're getting new pushback in Congress, according to Greg Vellier, on tax increases. Can we move this forward without tax increases, or do you just assume it's got to happen? Well, this is what you mean by this. If you mean a modest infrastructure plan, probably. If it's true infrastructure, you could borrow from much of that and use user fees. If you mean the very large spending bills the president has proposed, you would need tax increases. Unfortunately, what you would have to have to really pay for that would be something like a value-added tax. And the president hasn't talked about that. The tax increases he's proposing are much too small. Glenn Hubbard, thank you so much. Greatly, greatly appreciated uh, this morning. Right now, we are thrilled to bring on the equity market someone who's absolutely nailed it. Julian Emanuel, BTID Chief Equities and Derivative Strategist. Julian, good morning. I'm going to cut right to the chase. We've had a rotation. One camp says the rotation continues. Another camp says go long the big tech. Which is it? Uh, we think the rotation continues. If you look at it, uh, regardless of what the Fed does or does not do, says or doesn't say, how many thinking abouts we hear, the U.S. economy is going to grow somewhere six, seven, 
8% this year. It's tracking for 10% this quarter. And that to us means value continues to outperform. We're going to do a headline right now and we'll come back to it in a moment with Romain Bostic, AMC Entertainment. They filed a sell up to 12 million uh, shares. That's on a float right now of 500 million. So you can take 12 and divide it by 500 and give you a sense of it. We'll get back to that uh, in a moment on the stock that has an original story. Julian Emanuel, what's your original story in this market right now? Is you write up for the weekend after the jobs report? What sectors, what part of the market are you looking at? Well, so for us, the story has been, if you look at it, uh, you've got the mean stocks moving, you've got this fascination with inflation. But in reality, the S&P 500 index has essentially gone nowhere for the last two months. Uh, now, normally, the, the wisdom has it, you never want to short a dull market. You look at the last three years or so, and actually, in fact, when the market gets this quiet, uh, basically, you know, day-to-day -day moves in the S&P 500 of three, four, five points on a 4,000-plus number, uh, it really says it's time to be a little bit more defensive. As I said, we like the value stocks. Uh, we're tilting more defensively here. Consumer staples with pricing power, healthcare, and actually REITs, which are going to do well if the environment stays inflationary. Julian, are you telling clients to load the boat on AMC? That's a much more difficult call, Lisa. I think when, when you look at it, the options market is telling you that the yellow flag is coming out once again. We go back to uh, January when you had that first top in the meme stocks. Uh, we all know the video game retailer. Their option implied volatility hit 1,000%. That was the top. We're at about 650, 700% um, in, uh, in the movie theater uh, stock today. Uh, this is a warning sign. The speculation is intense. Uh, and yeah. as we saw back in January, rocket ships go well, back to their lunch pads. How do you understand the trading activity here? Is this Reddit traders sending messages to their grandmothers saying load the boat on AMC? Or is there another phenomenon happening here that's either more tied to the fundamental are more tied to institutional traders? Well, I, it, it is a more magnified version, again, of what happened in January, is that basically uh, the, the people gathering on social media uh, have plenty of money in, in their accounts, they paid their taxes with winnings from last year and are pushing selected stocks. The group is narrowing, um, but it is very much a social media phenomenon. But the other thing about it is, strangely enough, is that the shorts really haven't learned their lessons from January. So if you look at it, the short interest continues to rise. Right. It's not what it was. But it's still, you know, really too high given the price action. Julian, quickly here, I don't want to get you in trouble with the general counsel, BTIG, but are you seeking regulation of what we're observing in things like AMC? The, the thing that ties all of this together is the fact that uh, margin debt, leverage, is at all-time highs. And generally, when we see that, obviously the indices are near all-time highs. Uh, right. it, it's almost inevitable that the government will step in at some point. Julian, thank you so much. Julian Emanuel with BTIG. Less nerdy than me is Jennifer Nuzzo at Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, and she joins us right now. Jennifer, I was talking about this last night at the dining room table. We completely have missold the triumph of American virology, American microbiology, and our pharmaceutical business. It is stunning, as President Biden said, what's occurred. 
I agree. I mean, we are uh, living a much different life now than we were a year ago, um, thanks to science, and not just thanks to science in the last year, but thanks to you know more than a decade, several decades worth of science. This is why we invest. This is why we sustain. This is why we do this because one day it will be necessary. It'll be it'll be important. Dr. Nutso, can we codify the scientific advancement in a social passport, a vaccine passport that people can use, can take to go places and say, I am not at risk of getting COVID or frankly, that high risk of distributing it either? Yeah, so it's a really tricky question. I know people are very eager to do that because we're all eager to get back to normal. And for those of us who, you know, feel like we've done our part, we've went out and got vaccinated, we feel like we should be entitled um, to gain access to places. I fully expect that private businesses are going to require um, vaccine proof, uh, provided their governors don't prevent them from doing that, but that they will, um, you know, at some point start requiring vaccine proof um, to allow people to, you know, go to concerts and, and things like that. But it is a bit tricky because there are people out there who are hesitant and their, their hesitancy is not without reason. They're, this is a new vaccine. Um, you know, they maybe don't have the luxury of spending all day like I do thinking about these things. And so they still need to, you know, be convinced of the benefits of vaccinations. And, you know, I, I do worry about prematurely rolling those things out before we've had really a fair chance at winning the hearts and minds of people and showing them why these vaccines are um, so liberating and hopefully tools that they will willingly accept. Wait, to be I'm generally more in favor of carrots than sticks. Um, and so, you know, I expect that we'll probably be there at some point, but I do worry that rolling them out too quickly could create a culture war, which will entrench people in their opposition to it. So are you saying that the main reason against, the main argument against vaccine passports is an emotional one, is basically that you need to cater to the way that people feel about the vaccine first and then deal with the mandates later? No, I don't think it's an emotional one. I mean, you know, first of all, people's hesitancy is not purely about emotion. It is um, also just that, you know, we haven't fully approved a number of vaccines. I expect that that's going to come soon. But, you know, there still needs to be an educational component to it. It's more really about pragmatism. Um, that said, there's also some access issues. And um, we know that many of the people who haven't yet been vaccinated, it's not because they don't want to. It's just that they haven't been able to. And in part because it's harder for them to get. They may not have time off from work. That may be um, not as many options in all places where people live. And so, you know, we also have to be worried um, about what we restrict people from doing uh, if they haven't been vaccinated and whether that's worth it in the long run. I don't care about the emotions as much as the pragmatism. And I worry that if we create a culture war or roll these things out too quickly, Doc that we could actually dampen enthusiasm for vaccines. Doctor, what what danger do the anti-vaxxers present? I mean, if you end up in a situation where 60, 70 percent of the U.S. population is vaccinated, are they threatened? Is that majority threatened by a minority that refuses to get the shots? Sure. So, so far, the answer is they are dangerous to themselves. The people who have not gotten vaccinated are dangerous to themselves because they risk getting vaccinated. And I'm so interested in reaching those folks and convincing them of the benefits of vaccines because I don't want there to be any additional loss of life. Of course, you know, down the road, we very much worry about, you know, as long as this virus continues to circulate at high levels, that there is the potential for mutations that could overcome vaccines. But so far, we haven't seen that. So right now, at least in the United States, that is less of my concern because our case numbers are falling. My main concern right now is making sure we protect people so that we don't see additional loss of lives, so we don't see schools close in places where um, schools had been open. 
um, you know, it's it's about getting back to normal. I'm not giving up on people. I still think we can reach them. Jennifer Nuzzo, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it with Johns Hopkins this morning on this story unfolding. And you heard the president there with great optimism about the summer. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.